0: Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. What shall we then say of these things? If our God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Jesus Christ, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, Know it to be true. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. If you'll open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is an incredibly uh, familiar text, I suspect, to many of you. Lots of you will recognize this passage and will know it and will appreciate it. Uh, And I urge you to appreciate it by doing this. Uh, If the uh, weathermen are to believe, we're going to get snowed in here in a little bit. Uh, If that's the case, I want you to spend some time looking through this passage. Unfortunately, we're only going to look at a very small part of it. Uh, And we're only going to make one small point with a very small part of it. Which means that there is so much in this passage. This passage is justly popular within Christian circles. We have sung all about it today. If you're wondering why we sing the songs we do, read this passage, meditate on it. I ask you to spend some time in this text if indeed we are snowed in or sometime this week. Actually spend some time going over this text because it's, it feels wrong to read a passage like this in front of God's people and then not deal with it more, not think about it together, it it yearns to to be looked at, uh, but instead, I'm leaving that up to you, so go ahead and do that, be sure. Have you ever been, uh, I want you to think back to a time where I suspect that you have had this experience like I have, where you've been pinned down by somebody's logical argument, where you're in some kind of a debate or you're in a discussion or something along those lines, uh, and sure enough, Uh, they say something and everything shifts and you suddenly go, wow, yeah, that's totally right. I uh, enjoy a spirited discussion as much as the next guy. Uh, And uh, particularly when I was younger, I would have lots of those uh, spirited discussions. And by and large, I think that I uh, held my own for most of the time. Uh, But there were moments, particular moments, and I can remember a couple of them where I am dead set committed to the position that I'm holding, and I am articulating, and I'm discussing it back and forth, and all this kind of stuff, and the person I'm dialoguing with says, yeah, but what about this? And he brings up a point, and everything shifts. My whole thinking and everything, it's just one of those spots where you go, oh my gosh, that's really right. And then everything turns when you look at that. Verse 32 in our passage today has that kind of force of logic, it's a relentless logic that drives us to a certain point, and I wanna take a look at that for a second, so if your Bibles are open again, chapter, 30, chapter eight, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's a driving point that is almost inescapable in that passage. Let's take a look at it again. He who did not spare his own son. Now, who is it? He who did not spare his own son. Obviously, this is God. We're talking about God. But we're not just talking about God because, of course, we talk about the son later. It's the being who gave up his own son. That is God, but which, you know, the father, the personhood of the God we're talking about is the father that we're talking about here. He who did not spare his own son. The father, who did not spare his own son. And then it goes on to say, but gave him up for us all. Recognize that to spare his own son and gave him up for us all drives us to the cross of Christ. This is not something, the text here is explicitly identifying that it was the act, it was the work of God the Father that brought God the Son to the cross of Jesus Christ. When we think of God the Father, many of us have a great fond appreciation for the work that Jesus did for us, and we should. It is the Christ who died on the, it was he who sacrificed himself, all of that is wonderful. But he does so under the direction and according to the plan of God the Father. And that's exactly what this text says. This text is highlighting the work, not of the Son, which of course underlies it, and which is so important for us, but this text highlights the work of God the Father. And it says, God the Father, what did he do? He gave up his own son. That's technical, biblical language here for the sacrifice that was there. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is not an action that Christ just took. It's not an action that God directed that just would happen. It was an action, it was a text that was directed towards us all. All It is in, with us in mind that God the Father does this. So here's the, the driving force of the logic. If God the Father is willing to sacrifice his own son for you, conclusion, how will he not also graciously give us all things? What things? All things. That's what the passage says. The passage says, all things are ours. Now, we have to step back and think about this for a second, because this is not pie in the sky, by and by, Pollyannish thinking here on the part of Paul. Paul is the guy who was shipwrecked. Paul's the guy who's been beaten. Paul's the guy who's been in jail. Technically, Romans was not written while Paul was in jail, but that's only because it happened in one of those few months when he wasn't in jail. Paul spent his time being persecuted, being beaten, being arrested, all these terrible kinds of things that we would look at in that life and say, this is a miserable life. This is a terrible thing that Paul is experiencing here. This is just And yet he sits here and says, no, no, it is a gracious gift of God to give us all things. And he is trapped into saying that, by the relentless force of this logic. Listen to it again. If God gives up his son, if he's willing to give his son for you, what possibly is he gonna withhold? What could you possibly imagine he's not going to give you? He has given up his very son for you. So all of us, I believe, are trapped by that logic into thinking to ourselves, either we have to embrace the conclusion that God is going to graciously give us all things, regardless of what my life looks like, regardless of what I think of my circumstances, regardless of the difficulties that I'm going through, I'm stuck believing that Christ is gonna give, God is gonna give me all things graciously, everything. Or, I end up challenging the premise, maybe, God the Father didn't give me his son. Maybe he didn't sacrifice his son. Maybe he didn't give up his son and spare his son. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we know specifically that that's what God did do. He gave up his son for every one of us, and so in an inevitable step of logic that we cannot avoid, Look, I'd give a lot of things for you guys. I'm willing to give of my time. I'm willing to give of whatever talents I have. I'm willing to give of all my energy, lots of my energy at least. Uh, you know, everything say. Fo- no, I was going to make a football comment, but never mind. You know, I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm, I'm willing to give. You, I would never. I love some of you, I like, I, I like most of you. I would. You know, maybe for Kelly, would I give up my son? I don't know. Let's not think like that. (laughs) Let's just assume that I wouldn't do it for any of you. But if I would, how could you possibly doubt that I give you everything else? How could you possibly doubt that? So what do we do when we doubt that? What do we do when we're stuck in a situation that God seems distant What do we do when we're stuck in a situation where not only does God seem distant, but God seems to be forming and manipulating the circumstances of this world against us, not for us. I think that Paul's text, Paul's comment here, again, driven by that relentless position of logic is go back to this. Remind yourself again of who this God really is. He's the one who is freely and openly given of the greatest of things. He has given to you his son Jesus Christ. Nothing will he withhold. It's that same press of logic, that same act of logic that drives the uh, uh, first line of the Apostles' Creed. We just said the Apostles' Creed together. <clears throat> And we're going to look at that a little bit. And that same force of logic is supposed to uh, hold us when we state together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That, that what's behind that is that same push, that relentless drive of logic of what that means for us. So let's go through it a little bit. I believe, once again, we talked about this last week, we're not going to reiterate it. The emphasis here is not on I believe, look at me and the power of my belief and the essence that belief somehow, it's the, the notion of having faith itself is the key component here. That's not the case. We looked at that last week. The focus of Christian belief is not the power, it's not the the function of having belief. It's not look at how how much we can change the world because we have this mystical quality of belief in our hearts or something like that. The Christian drive, when we talk about the belief, is what we have belief in. It's that object of our faith. It's the orientation in which we orient ourselves. And here we are saying, I believe in, in God. I believe in God. Now, certainly built into that statement is a recognition that when the Christian states that, that they are affirming the existence of God. Okay, I believe in God. That's, I'm, I, my guess is that's immediately what everybody here jumps to. When we say, I believe in God, what we're jumping to is, I believe in the existence of God. And it's the case that if we were to say, you know, I believe in UFOs, or I believe the world is round, or something like that, we are, te- we are saying, look, I believe in the existence of a round world, or I believe in the existence of UFOs, or something along those lines. That's what, and yes, that underlies this creedal statement, when, when, the, when the creed says, I believe in God, part of what's being said there is, I believe, because of course we're capturing the essence of the scriptures, that's what the creed does, it captures the essence of the scriptures, what do the scriptures affirm? They affirm the, exi- the existence of God, uh, but only sort of. The the scriptures are not a Bible, it's not a book where you're going to go and find the defense of the existence of God. That's not what the Bible does. The Bible assumes the existence of God. When the Bible is calling for faith in God, it's not calling for faith in the existence of God, something different. If I were to say, I believe in my wife, or better, let's say, I believe in the staff of this church. Please, nobody here sit there and think, oh, Henry believes in the existence of Jerry. Okay? Yes, I believe in the existence of Jerry. I believe in the existence of Ellen and of Kara. and You know, that's not what, if I tell you, listen, I believe in my staff. I believe in the staff. And by the way, you've got a great staff at this church. They are well worth believing in. What do we mean when we say that? I'm not saying I believe in the existence of staff. I am telling you that I believe, I trust in the staff, that the staff are dependable, that they are reliable, that they are folks that I can put my confidence and trust in. When I say I believe in the staff, uh, Kelly this morning rolled over and says, if we're to believe the weathermen today, we're going to have snow. You know, well, what is that? It's not if we're to believe weathermen exist, unfortunately. No, no, weathermen exist, um, the question is, do we believe in them or not? You know, do we trust the weathermen and those kind of things? Do we trust, do I trust God? I believe in God is not a statement that I believe in the existence of God. Sort of it is, but that's not what the creed is doing because that's not what the Bible is doing. Underlying what the Bible says when the Bible says, look, you're supposed to believe in God, is the same notion when I say, I believe in the staff or I believe in. Uh, my co workers, or I believe in weathermen, or I believe it means that I trust and I place my dependence upon these things. Here, I trust and place my dependence upon God. When the Christian recites the creed together and says, I believe in God, we're not saying just simply, it's, this is not a, a statement for, hey, let's ha- talk about the existence of God and those kind of things. That's a different s- set of questions that are all well, worth exploring. When the Christian affirms, I believe in God, what we're affirming is, this is a, there is a being, a divine being, whereby I put my trust, and I put my faith, and my confidence. There's a whole lot of Christians that shouldn't say, I believe in God, because they might know of his existence, but they don't lean into him, they don't trust him, they don't depend on him. But it's not just some... Uh, esoteric divine being that we're talking about. The scriptures well recognize the existence of other gods, not the metaphorical existence, but rather the fact that that things can be treated like gods. They're called idols in this world, and we all know those kind of things. But when the Christian says, I believe in God the Father, what we're stating is not just that we believe that there's some being up there with a long white beard and he controls the world or something like that. What we're saying is that I believe in the divine being who has revealed himself in the scriptures as father. Now here's what, uh, here's what we gotta think of when we think of fatherhood of God. You gotta wrap yourself around that term a little bit because that's a familial term. That's a term of family. It's a term of relationships. And when the Christian says, I believe in God the Father, the Christian is saying, I put my trust and daily dependence upon the being who has revealed himself as desiring intimacy with me. The one who wants to be relational with me. The one who has shown himself all through the scriptures to view me as his child. When we say, I believe in God the Father, we are asserting, I put my trust in the God who has shown himself, who wants to know me. This is a God who, who isn't just distant but by the very essence of his revelation, the very way in which he shows himself, the very thing that I can trust and depend upon is that he has gone out of his way to say, this is who I am. I desire to know you. What what stronger question, doubt, rises in the Christian's mind then that for some reason God just is missing it about me. He just doesn't see that this is what I need. He just doesn't, he's not paying enough attention or, now we don't say that because nobody believes it, but that's kind of the way we live. We're kind of trapped in that thinking that God doesn't know me. But when we say I believe in God the Father, we are asserting we believe in that God that reveals himself in the Bible who desperately desires to know us, to be intimate with us, to be in that relationship with us. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Having said all those wonderful intimate things about God, having admitted that the Bible describes God as this this passionate being that desires to have intimate relationships with us, who wants to draw close to us and to know every aspect of who we are. Having admitted that, this is God the Father almighty. It probably shouldn't surprise any of you that the word almighty comes from the smearing together of all and might. God has all might. This is a description of God's sovereignty. This is a description of I believe, I trust in the God who desires to be relationally connected to me and yet at the same time is almighty, he has all might. He is sovereignly controlled over everything. If you start talking about God's sovereignty with somebody on the street or even within this room, my guess is immediately you're gonna devolve into questions of, well, how sovereign is he? What does he control? Does he control the bad things as well as the good things? What is his desire for those things? You know, We're gonna immediately devolve into that kind of a discussion. But when you look at the scriptures, and you look at how the scriptures talk about God's sovereignty, it is always, almost always, a, a sign of worship, uh, something that, that prompts the believer to praise the Lord. Look at Job, the way that Job talks about God Almighty, or the psalmist, how the psalmist talks about the providence and the, and the sovereignty of God. Every one of those steps drives the believer to praise and to worship God all the more. When the Christian says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, he's saying, I believe in God, the one who is relationally connected to me and yet at the same time deserves the universal praise for everything that he has his hands on. It's, it, that's the God that I'm going to put my trust in. That's the God that I'm going to rely on in every possible situation. Not only that, but because he is also the maker of heaven and earth. Now, this is, this is uh, the creed was written, you know, uh, uh, 1500 years ago, 16, 1700 years ago, many, many years ago, back when you said one thing You were implying the rejection of the other. Uh, Our language today doesn't necessarily work that way. In our postmodern world, you can both say this and this, which in a lot of minds are opposed to each other and yet mean both of them. Uh, uh, You know, our society today has a different handle of truth. But back in the day when you said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you weren't just affirming something, what you believe in, you were also tacitly rejecting something else. What were you rejecting? Back in the day, there were two primary ideas about the way the world existed. The world always existed, it was just an eternal piece of matter that was always there, or that rival divine beings got around to creating the world, and that the world was somehow deficient, somehow bad, somehow not good and into that mix where the world is always, either always, always around, or rather it was kind of this subset of something negative, into that world comes the creedal statement, the biblical statement from the scriptures that God created what? He's the maker of heaven and earth. Okay, God's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the maker of earth, Most of us can get that, we recognize what it means that God controls the the earth around us, or makes the earth around us, but also that he's the maker of heaven. That is all of the the angelic beings, all of the heavenly beings, the existence of the place called heaven, everything, everything there that we normally associate with, with God, the goodness of God, all of heaven, but also everything here upon this earth, this earth, is an expression of God's creative love for his people. And here's where that relentless logic drives us. This is just a small piece of what we affirm as Christians. But when we affirm as Christians, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we are affirming that idea that I can trust, I can depend upon this God. Why? Because he is the God He is the Father, He is the Almighty One, but everything that is around me, everything that I know, my entire life, is in the hands of God of Heaven, who has created all things, and if He has given all things, if He has made all things, if this is all about Him, then I can trust in that God. If you fail to trust in that God, if you don't daily put your life in the hands of that Lord, you are somewhere along the lines challenging the very essence that God created the world. That God, Just like in that passage earlier, that if we don't believe that God has graciously given us all things, then somehow we are doubting that he has given us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Here we have this statement in the scriptures, in the, sorry, statement in the creed that summarizes the scriptures that the Christian can and must put their dependence upon God who relationally is our Lord, who is sovereign over all things, and who because he has created all things is apt to give us all things. Because that's the Lord that the scriptures reveal, because that's the Lord that we sing of, because that's the Lord that you get up on a Sunday morning and come worship together, that's why we have this relentless push to orient our thing, to thinking, to orient your next couple of days around the simple truth, this is the God that I believe in. This is the God that I have faith in and can put my daily trust. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for the promise of your scriptures, for the promise of your word, that because of the work in which you have done for us, because of how you have revealed yourself, because of the graciousness and the love that you have expressed to us in Jesus Christ, we know we can graciously expect all things from your hand. Lord, when the circumstances strike and I do not and I fail, to think of the grace in which you give us and to orient my life around that. Lord, I confess and I ask for your continual direction and guidance leading in my own life, leading in our lives as we desire to be more and more faithful. God, strike us with the reality of that logic that if indeed you have given us your son, if indeed you have made everything around us, then there is nothing that you will not do for us. For you are acting continually, Lord, for your glory and for the blessings that you pour out upon us, your children. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.